All right, if, uh, if you served this week at Gorilla Man Gun, I mean Runner's Camp, would you stand up just for a second so we can thank you for your hard work this week? Thank you so much. Yeah. Fantastic job. Thank you. Have a seat. It is really important, thankless work that, uh, that many, many, many volunteers do at Runner's Camp uh, each time we have it, and we are so thankful. I am amazed at the number of people who make that sacrifice, um, so, so thank you. Uh, another thing to be thankful for this morning um, are a group of people that you don't even know exist, probably. They're called trustees. Um, they just saved us $170,000 on a bank refinance. They are furiously trying to turn the air conditioning on in this room as we speak. There is a thermostat that thinks it shouldn't be on, that they keep telling to turn on. They keep... So if you're a trustee, would you stand up, one of the, any of the trustees who are here today? Thank you, guys. Thank you. They... Uh, they, they serve in so many ways. Anytime anything's broken gets fixed, it's because of these men, and we are very thankful. If you have skills, uh, you can actually fix things, um, and we'd be willing to, to serve our church in, with those skills. Talk to one of our trustees. We probably need your help. If you're good with duct tape, especially, we, we really need your help. Um, one last thing to, to be thankful for this morning. I got word from Russ Jackson, Stephanie's. Uh, husband Stephanie is our children's ministry director. Um, she is battling um, cancer, and the lymph node test came back clear. So, so we have much to thank God for. Would you bow with me this morning? God, I I do love the church, um, love this church, love the way she serves and cares and prays, and I pray your rich favor upon the folks we just singled out, the, the runner's camp uh, workers, um, our trustees. God, bless these for their uh, humble service. May they find favor with you. May that be their great joy and their reward. And we thank you for the good news about Stephanie's cancer. We pray that uh, her doctor would devise a wise follow-up plan for her and that you would delight to bless her with good health and many more years of glad service. Lord, refresh her as she is away from us this summer. And now, refresh us by your word. Bring your word to us in ways that we receive as your word um, with the power to change and rescue and deliver even as we have need today. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, recently, I got, I got fascinated with a car. And uh, I wanted to buy this car. Uh, it was only 10 years old, so it was going to be an upgrade for me. And uh, it was an O2 British SUV, um, only 50,000 miles. This is a really, I, 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 dro I drove the thing, and I thought, this is, this is a fantastic car. And I went, I, I kind of was looking through the little owner's manual. I went to find the hood. There's no hood 
It has a bonnet. It's, it's British. I thought, this is so cool. The car has a bonnet. And I tried to open the bonnet, and I found out that it's not on the left side where Americans would find. It's on the right side where drivers would be in Britain. The steering wheel is on the left because the car is in the States. So I thought, this is, a, this is a great car. But I knew nothing about British cars. So I stopped by an independent shop uh, in the area that services British cars. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about buying this British SUV. And, uh, and he says, oh, really? He said, uh, well, tell me about it. And I said, it's an O2. It's only got 50,000 miles. It's in fabulous shape. He said, well, it's coming up on a timing belt change. I said, okay. He said, I'll charge you three grand for that. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, then these cars have lots of problems. You should, you should keep doing research, he tells me. I said, hmm. Okay, so I call the dealership because I like this car. It has a bonnet. Whose car has a bonnet? So I, I call the dealership and I say, I'm thinking about buying this British SUV where, where they sell them in. And uh, I said, it's going to need a timing belt. What would you charge me to the timing belt? And he tells me, it's not far off of $3,000. And I said, hmm. And he says, so you're thinking about buying this car? And I said, yeah. And he says, hmm. And I said, it's only got 50,000 miles on it. And it just had the transmission rebuilt. And he said, well, the only problem is, he says, that's about 50,000 miles too many on that vehicle. Now, these are the guys who sell this vehicle and repair them. I'm not done, because I like this car. It has a bonnet, for gosh sakes. It's British. It's so cool. So I, I figure I'll go online. I'll look at some reviews, and I find things. Um, I get the feeling that I don't have any gas, guys. You may have to advance the slides for me today. I find this review. I purchased this vehicle in January of 07. It ran fine for a few months, but then started experiencing every problem you could imagine. Would jolt from first to second gear. Electrical issues were vast. It's not a good word, and you know, not a good one. Um, I could get up and drive it to work, but then once you would turn it off, it wouldn't turn back on. Not a good thing, not insurmountable. It has a bonnet, I could live with that. Say if you forgot your cell at home, etc., was temperamental, the air from the vents stunk like pickles. <laughs> I've been thinking I like pickles. So I look at the next review, and you are going to have to advance my slides for me this morning, so I'll pretend like I'm doing it. This car is a lemon, the next review said. Engine needed to replace at 29,000. Transmission at 40,000. And this car was well taken care of. We were told by the service department to get rid of, the service department said, get rid of the car at the end of the warranty because of all the problems this car is known to have. Too bad we didn't get the same warning from the sales department. <laughs> so I'm thinking pickles, lemons. I like pickles. I like lemons. Um, they're telling me this is a bad deal. Don't do that deal. But I like the car. So I decide to go to the fount of all wisdom, and I ask my wife about this car. And she gives me that, are you crazy look? And so I decided to pass. Bonnet or no bonnet, I would pass. All the voices were saying, it's a bad deal. 
Don't do that deal. And that, that is exactly, I'm paraphrasing, what Jesus is saying in our passage today. What he's talking about is it's a bad deal. Don't do that deal. Matter of fact, he, he trots out about four deals that are bad for your soul. Don't do these deals. Heed the warning from Jesus. Don't do, don't do these deals. And they start in Matthew chapter 15, where we are in our study of Matthew. Whoops. Hey, I'm, I, I'm back. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, right away, this is not a good situation when an investigative committee has been dispatched from Jerusalem Religious HQ to come to investigate Jesus. Um, they are not there to praise him. They are there to examine him. And their question is about his disciples not washing their hands when they eat. Every mom thinks this is a great question, right? That's a really good question. Why don't you wash your hands when you eat? But... So hand washing here is really not about personal hygiene in this case. It's about a religious tradition. Um, and it was, it's really not about the disciples either. Um, they are really after Jesus because it's interesting. In another one of the gospel accounts, we find out that this is Jesus' own practice. In Luke 11, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee again asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at his table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Again, not about hygiene, but about a religious washing, um, a religious tradition. So, kids... Even though Jesus did not wash his hands before the meal, you have to, okay? This is not about hygiene. This is about a religious tradition, and Jesus is not giving you a pass on washing your hands. Now, the Pharisees were experts at this. They had written an entire treatise on, with minute details on the washing of hand, how much water you needed for one hand, how much water you needed to cleanse both hands. I mean, they were sticklers for this, um, and to be completely safe, some of the Pharisees got such where every morning they would take full immersion baptismal baths, um, and whenever they came back from public life, being out on the town, they would take another a full immersion baptismal bath. Um, these are people who really did want to be clean before the Lord. Okay? They went to great lengths, ceremonial, to pull that off. All of this was part of a fence of sorts that they had built around the law, around the commands of God, to help the common people not violate it. So if, if this is the law, they would build a fence around it just to make sure that nobody accidentally, accidentally violated it. Dale Bruner says it can remind us of our own books of confessions, books of church order, church bylaws, practices and disciplines, all of which have the honorable office of protecting, interpreting, and applying our scriptures to orderly congregational life. So this was intended to be a good thing. But as Mark Driscoll says, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. 
And that, as we'll see, is, is what happened to the Pharisees. But Jesus declines at this point to defend his disciples, and he chooses instead to counterattack. And Jesus answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? A couple verses later. Um, so, this, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Okay. He goes right after the Pharisees. And again, Jesus is doing here what our kids often try to do. Jesus is changing the subject. Okay. You, you tell your, your child, your room is a wreck. And he'll say, but my brother's room is wreckier. Okay. <laughs> Um, this is a, kids, this is a divine prerogative. Only Jesus gets to do this. It's, it's like creating the world. Only God gets to change the subject when you're being accused, okay? You have to actually answer the question that your mom is asking you at that point in time. Jesus accuses them of exchanging the traditions of men in the place of the word of God. This is, according to Jesus, bad deal number one, exchanging the traditions of men for the very words of God. And he has a specific case in mind that he's um, talking about. It says, God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Okay? But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The specific practice that Jesus is citing here is one that was called Corban. And it involved, um, they could set apart part of their financial resources, or their means, whatever they were, for God when they died. And so they could say to their needy parents, I'm sorry, you can't use that money, those resources, because they've been set aside for God. But until they died, they personally had access to those resources to use as they would. It was kind of an end around God's commands to honor their parents. Um, again, Bruner says, Jesus says, you hand washers are parent abusers. You who say grace at table do not practice grace at home. This angers Jesus, he says. The very people who guard even the minutiae of Scripture, such as priestly hand-washing, fly right in the face of the first and fundamental social commandment in the Ten Commandments, the command to honor parents. See, what began to matter most to them was a man-made rule. It mattered more than what God had said. As long as they were obeying the man-made rule, they were okay. It became actually a way around God's command. It became their ultimate authority. So a good thing had become a God thing, and that, that is a bad thing. Okay. And this bad deal of valuing human tradition over God's word seems especially tempting to those of us who spend our days trafficking in human ideas, philosophy, theology, Counseling theory, ethics, missiology. Did, did I miss anyone? Did I get all you guys out there? Um, 
See, we can so love the traditions, good traditions, built on the Word, intended to explain the Word, but which are not the clear, explicit teaching of the Word, that we can let them trump the Word. It can matter more to us. These philosophies and theologies and missiologies and counselingologies and whatever other ologies we have that are intended, intended to protect the Word can actually usurp the Word. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is a fellow named, it was told by a fellow named Emo Phillips. He says, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. So are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? <laughs> he said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> now, does your philosophy or your theology divide the very body of Christ? Does it trump the great, clear teachings of Scripture about the oneness and unity of the body of Christ? Dale Bruner, again, sounds a clear and wise warning for those of us who live in the camp of Reformed theology, which he does. He says, uh, broadly, first he said, this caution should move all pastors and teachers in the church to a close expository teaching of Scripture in order to know more surely that we are worshiping God aright. But then he says, since I value the tradition of the Reformation so much, I must constantly be careful not to allow the precious heritage of the Reformers to contort the clear and honest sense of what a Scripture text actually says. See, at every level, we must guard against the application of a doctrine rising to the level of a doctrine. So we do small groups and youth groups, or we don't do small groups, or we don't do youth groups. We talk about who can and who cannot take communion. We talk about wine or grape juice. We talk about do we meet in church buildings or homes? Do we meet all together in one big group, or do we have classes for our children? Do we knock on doors, or do we build relationships when we talk to people about Jesus? All of these applications can, be more important, can become more important to us, helpful as they are, valuable as they are, important as they are. They can usurp the Scriptures. And to exchange the Word of God for the tradition and teaching of men, even good teaching, Jesus says, that's a bad deal. Don't do that deal. Okay? Don't give your allegiance to that which is not Scripture. 
not your supreme allegiance to that which is not explicitly the word of God. He continues on this matter in verse 7. He says, you hypocrites. He's talking to those Pharisees again. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites. This means actors, pretenders, phonies. And this is the first time, it's not the last time, Jesus calls the Pharisees uh, this. See, they were just giving lip service to God, especially to his word. They didn't teach and obey the word supremely from their hearts. They were just acting. It's interesting, the San Jose Mercury News carried this article one time about a guy named James Kelly of Washington, D.C. He's one of a small group at his local church who are enthusiastic Episcopalians, but who do not believe in God. It says, we all love the incense, the stained glass windows, the organ music, the vestments, and all of that. It's drama. It's aesthetics. It's the ritual. That's neat stuff. I don't want to give all that up just because I don't believe in God. Maybe we're not that extreme, but we can be just as foolish. We have an expression for that. It's called Sunday morning Christians. People who honor God with their lips on Sunday mornings, but not with their hearts on Monday mornings or on Saturday nights. Just lips, but not hearts. Just going through the motions of worship instead of loving God with all your heart, Jesus says that's bad deal number two. Don't don't do that deal. Don't settle for that. It happens to us when we give our heart to some other thing. When the passion, the one supreme passion that's supposed to be reserved for God is given to something else. It could be sports. It could be family. It could be work. It could be TV. It could be interior decorating. It could be drugs or drink or food or porn. It could be anything. Is there something that has your heart in such a way that God does not have it? You know, it's a really sobering statement that Isaiah makes, and Jesus quotes here, worship can be vain. This can all be a colossal waste of time. The solution is not to stop coming to worship. It is to deal with the hypocrisy of your heart, to deal with whatever you've given your allegiance to such that your allegiance is not God's. Your love is not God's. Is there something that has your heart in such a way that God does not have it in a greater way? Would you be willing to lay that down and turn from that today and give your supreme love to him today? And it's connected again. You notice the language Isaiah uses to teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. The ideas of men are more valued to you than the words of God and that that will not sustain your heart in a passionate love for God. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, let me have a show of hands, anybody here who works at, teaches at, or attends the seminary. You just raise your hand. Okay, we have a good number of seminary folk here. Um, 
This is a terrifying thing we are reading about. The Bible teachers, that is the scribes, and the Bible protectors, that is the Pharisees, have fallen into hypocrisy. Could that happen to us? Could we find ourselves just giving lip service to worship, settling for head knowledge of the word? Could we find ourselves at a place where we'd rather read theology than read the Bible? Where we'd rather debate philosophy than discuss obedience to the word? Where devotion becomes about reading books about the Bible rather than the Bible itself, listening to other people talk about the Bible rather than prayerfully reading the actual Bible. I don't know about you, but that sounds perilously close to preferring our traditions to God's command. Lip service for heart worship, Jesus says that's bad deal number two. Don't do that. Don't settle for that. Don't come here hoping to hear Larry, hoping he's going to be funny today. Come hoping to hear from God, from his word. Don't come in here to enjoy the music. Come here to worship the God who is worthy of our best musicians, best efforts. Don't come in with an unsurrendered heart. Surrender your heart to God, your supreme allegiance and love to God. That's the good deal. Jesus continues in verse 10 as he turns away from the Pharisees and to the people. And he called the people to him and he said to him, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. He says defilement and righteousness, for that matter, comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. The disciples are listening in on this, and they interrupt with a question of their own. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this saying? Okay. And I think the reason they asked this question is because the Pharisees were esteemed religious leaders in their communities. Pharisees are, were like the pastors and the professors of their day. Okay. I think they're more like the professors of their day. It's just my opinion just my opinion. So Jesus now has to set the disciples straight, not only about the Pharisees' teaching, but about the Pharisees as teachers. And this is what he said. This is really, really strong. He answers his disciples, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, those Pharisees. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Oh, those are strong words, sobering words. Jesus says, they are not my father's plants. They were not planted by him. They are not of God. They will be judged by him, Jesus says. They are spiritually blind. If you follow them, you're going to fall in the same pit of judgment that they will. Leave them alone. Don't follow them. There are pastors like this today. And for some odd reason, unbeknownst to me, they seem to end up on TV a lot. Um, they are not of the Father. They will face his judgment. 
They cannot lead you spiritually because they teach the words of men as doctrine over the word of God. Leave them alone. Stay away, Jesus says. Bad deal number three, according to Jesus, following blind spiritual guides. Don't, don't do that one. Don't, don't do that deal. Make sure your guides exalt God's word over the traditions of men. Now, Peter is totally befuddled by this, so he asks Jesus a question. He's probably speaking for all the disciples here, and he says, explain the parable to us. Um, this has been a helpful strategy before. When the disciples are befuddled, they ask Jesus to explain the parable. The problem is there's no parable this time. It really isn't a parable. It wasn't that hard. And Jesus is not happy with his disciples' cluelessness. So he says, are you still, also, still without understanding? I like the way the NIV puts it. Are you still so dull? The ever-colorful message Bible um, puts it this way, this interchange. Peter says, I don't get it. Put it in plain language. And Jesus replied, you too? Are you being willfully stupid? Okay. Now, this is especially the case because what had the disciples just been doing back in verse 2? They'd been eating without washing their hands. They'd been violating the tradition of the elders. So evidently, they had been not washing, but they had not been understanding either why they were free to not do that. So Jesus answers their question. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, and this is delicately rendered, rendered and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, fault witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is getting a bit pedantic here for the benefit of his dull disciples. Um, D.A. Carson says what Jesus says here literally is whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and into the latrine. Okay. Bruner says what comes from the outside into a human being ends in the sewage, not in the heart. But what comes up from inside and goes outside from heart into the world, well, Jesus now describes that as sewage. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Neither defilement nor righteousness works from the outside in. It's, it's not really about the food, Jesus is saying. And Mark, in his little explanation of this text, Mark says, Jesus therefore declared all foods clean. Jesus says it's a matter of the heart. It's about what you love, not merely what you do. That's what will defile you or what will make you righteous. This faith of ours, it's not centrally about what you will or won't, won't do. It's not about the rules. Like, there's this little old saying about good, good Christian young men, right? They, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't mess with girls that do. That's not reflective of the core of our faith. Um, not that those are bad guidelines, especially the chew part. I mean, honestly, I went online to find a picture of a woman dipping. I couldn't find one. 
So just imagine. <laughs> Isn't that attractive? Just imagine your girl with that wide. You just want to. Anyway. That is not one of our elders, no. He's a professional baseball player. Um, it's a matter of the heart. Okay? It's about the great life-dominating love we have for the one who died for us, who bore our sins. It's not centrally about going to church and small group and life change and study serve and feed and getting involved with ESL. It's not fundamentally about those things. It's about loving Jesus supremely, trusting him supremely, so that you go to church and you do study serve and you go to life change and you volunteer and feed and you work in ESO. It's a matter of the heart. Ask any parent. It doesn't work to just work on rules. It doesn't work to just work on behavior. It's about a heart that loves and trusts and obeys. That's why. Ted Tripp called his book Shepherding a Child's Heart, not Shepherding a Child's Behavior. If you focus on behavior primarily in your parenting, you get a compliant outside wrapped around a rebellious heart. Why do you do what you do? The Christian stuff. Why do you do what you do? The answer of course, is not to stop doing that stuff. The answer is to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God for you such that you do that stuff out of love for him as worship to him, heart worship. You have to come to grips with what we call the gospel, the good news of a God who loves you such that his son would die for you and be raised on the third day. See, to try to be right from the outside by merely keeping the rules, Jesus says that's bad deal number four. Don't do that deal. Don't make that your Christianity, rule keeping. Your core problem is not what you do. It's who you are deep down in here. Jesus says your heart is desperately wicked. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You need help with your heart, not just your behavior. It's not about behavior modification. That's why Ezekiel the prophet would talk about getting a new heart and God saying to Ezekiel again, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. It's not enough to be an upstanding good person, mostly. You need forgiveness for all the not-so-upstanding things that you've done. And Jesus says even the not-so-upstanding things that you've thought. You need a whole new you. And that's why John, in John 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. A whole new deal, a whole new relationship with God. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that you can't become righteous from doing good things? You need a heart change. You need heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. That's the language the Bible uses of a new creation, a new spirit, a new heart. It's a new relationship with God through faith in the loving work of Jesus on the cross for you. 
trying to change from the outside in, that's, that's a bad deal, Jesus says. So let me review. Bad deal number one, exchanging the traditions of men for the very words of God. Bad deal number two, exchanging lip service for real heart worship. Bad deal number three, following blind spiritual guides. Don't do that one. That's a bad deal. And to try to be right from the outside by merely keeping the rules, Jesus says that's bad deal number four. It's about the heart. So have you bought into any bad deals lately? Persisted in chasing any of these things even though good people have told you that's a bad deal, don't do that one. This morning, during our time of response, you have a chance to come and repent of a bad deal. If you've been dabbling with any of these things, if you've been falling prey to any of these ways of thinking, these pharisaical ways of thinking, then you get a chance to come and repent. And uh, down at the front, you're welcome to come and pray. Uh, the reason we invite you to do that, it's, it's kind of like a, a decisive act of saying yes to God. It's a consecrating act, we'd say, where you intentionally respond with your whole body to God by coming and bowing down before him in a way that your friends can see so they can encourage you and follow up later. Um, our praying elder, uh, Stuart Bowman, this morning is always available down here in the front. If you want an elder to pray with you, just go over to Stuart and he'll grab one of the other elders or he'll pray for you himself. Um, so if you want to come alone, just come right down to the steps. But if you want one of our elders or one of our women's ministry leaders to pray for you, uh, Stuart will be down here in the front. You just approach him and he'll make sure that someone does that with you. But come and seal the deal with God to make a viable commitment to respond to what God is saying to you this morning as an act of consecration, a big yes to what he's saying. Would you bow with me in prayer and then we'll respond. Lord, have mercy on us. Grant his hearts responsive to your word this morning. May we welcome repentance as a kindness from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.